0: This evening, we want to uh, open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. We're looking at verses 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures and pray this evening as we study them that you would give us clear minds to uh, think about this passage together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage follows on the heel of a couple of passages we've looked at that are very closely linked together over the last uh, couple of times we've been together on Sunday night. In one of them, uh, the first of them, the writer to the Hebrews takes his readers to task for their immaturity, uh, for the, not only the, the lack of progress that they have made, but apparently having lost what progress they had made. Uh, he says back in, in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And he goes on from there. But then he goes into a passage that seems to express his concern for them, not just for immaturity, not just for an inability to move on into deeper waters, theologically and biblically speaking. And I think he's saying some of this with a view toward understanding the priesthood of Christ with reference to Melchizedek. Uh, but the concern even of apostasy itself, of course, this comes up in chapter 6, verse 4, and following. He's encouraging them to move forward, to make progress, to grow. And verse 3, says, we'll do this if God permits, because it seems that the alternative is not just to tread water, uh, but to depart. Verse 4, for it's impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift. He goes on through that list of blessings that he mentions, and yet if someone does fall away, verse 6, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding them up to contempt, how they can be brought again to repentance. Uh, Almost as if they have, uh, in their their fallen, backslidden condition, become inured to, inoculated against the, the gospel. And we looked at that last time. Uh, And we said, when you study a passage like this, you need to remember the first principles, the things that you do know, the things that are clear. Uh, And the thing that is clear in Scripture is that someone who has been elected by the Father, purchased by the blood and resurrection of Jesus, and drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit, who gives life, who enables a person to come to Jesus, who draws that person to Jesus, cannot, after all of that, finally be lost. Uh, the idea that that would be the case is a very man-centered view of salvation. Salvation is God's work. Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. That no one includes you yourself. It includes me in, 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 in regard to my own salvation. So what are we to make of this? Well, I think the reason that the writer goes through all of these blessings, uh, been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gifts, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the, the good word of God, powers of the age to come, is to make the case that this is not a warning to be brushed aside. Well, he's talking about nominal Christians. He's talking about the person who goes to church once, twice a year, you know, Easter, Christmas. Uh, he's talking about somebody who just, you know, is doubtful all along. No, he's not. He's talking about people who once, to all appearances, loved Jesus and served Jesus well. I think that's why he is so emphatic there. He's he's talking to people who gave every appearance of being a genuine believer. And yet now, no longer walking with the Lord. Uh, As John would later say, they went out from us because they were not of us. Uh, parable of the sower. We mentioned these things last week. Now, what are you to think of someone in such a case? Well, we pray for their repentance. We pray for their restoration. And it is true that there are those who have wandered off and the Lord has brought back, repented and returned. Uh, but his point is, we are to be warned. And in fact, as he goes on to say, uh, he expects better things in the case of those who are his readers because of what he's seen in their lives, because God is not unjust so as to, uh, as he says, overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints. But, he says, we want you to show the same earnestness to the end. The way to persevere in Christ is to persevere in Christ. By God's grace, pursuing his grace, seeking his grace. But his point is to warn, and to warn in the strongest terms, that this is a, this is a concern that every believer should have. Make sure that we are not falling away, that we're not growing cold. Uh, We looked at Judas as, as an example, as a case in point, who very much seemed to fit these things that he describes here, and yet ultimately, as you know, is lost. But to persevere, to be steadfast, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises now, as he goes into our passage tonight, verse thirteen, he begins with four, connecting it with what went before. He just mentioned those who, through patience, through faith, inherit the promises, and it makes him think of Abraham, because that's where we go. Uh, who by faith, who by patience, inherited the promises God made? Well, Abraham, Abraham's the man of faith, right? He was a man of patience too, as uh, as we as we see. But his whole point here has to do with the trustworthiness of God. He's challenging them in their immaturity. He's warning them against apostasy. And he brings us back to God who is faithful. God who is trustworthy. Especially in those times when it may seem that life is hard. As difficult as it was perhaps for his readers at different times. That God can be relied upon. And he's not pulling some con game on us. But we can trust him. And he gives us three reasons here that God is worthy of our trust. Why we should persevere following Jesus. Because God is worthy of our trust. One, because of the promise that he's made. Look at verse 13. Uh, Twelve ends by his saying, Those through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he talks about this promise. These promises. Verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Now you think about that, I mean, he, goes, he, he makes much of this, and it's almost a little surprising, because of course Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Well, Jesus was not forbidding the practice of taking an oath. Uh, we, we take oaths when we join the church, when we get married, when we become an elder or deacon. We, we place an oath on ourselves, we affirm certain things that we give our word to. Uh, and in effect, we're calling God as witness to what we affirm. But people affirm something or swear by something higher than themselves. This is what he says in verse 16: they swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. You're effectively calling some higher authority, some higher power, to uh, to 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 hold you to account. For the, for the vow that you've taken. But when it's God who's making the promise, who does God make his oath by? Well, there's no one higher than God, so he makes it by himself. Now, that's the, that, that almost seems kind of funny, but that's exactly the, the argument that the, the writer to the Hebrews is taking here. Uh, and he uses the example of what God said to Abraham, saying, surely I will bless you and will multiply you. Now, where does he say that? Well, turn back... To uh, to Genesis uh, chapter twelve, Genesis chapter twelve, verse two. Of course, one and two. This, uh, this in three is a mere passage of this promise. By the way, in the men's Bible study, uh, studying uh, this passage just uh, last week, uh, he, he makes the case that, in, in a sense, the rest of the Bible is an exposition of the fulfillment of verses 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis 12. Almost as if the, re- that the rest of the Bible is, a, is is the outworking of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, as its text. And it is, I mean, because you have in seed form in these three verses, everything that God would do through the rest of Scripture. The rest of Scripture is a description of the fulfilling of these promises that the Lord makes to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, and your kindred, your father's house to the land, I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it's true, the rest of the scriptures are the story of God's fulfilling those promises that he makes to Abraham in in those uh, few verses. Now you turn over to chapter 15, verse 5, another promise. The Lord, uh, in verse 4, says, This man, Ishmael, shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars, if you were able to number them. He said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Now, turn over a few more pages to Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 following. 22, of course, is the passage where the Lord calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He's finally born. Abraham waits 25 years patience, inherits the promise, then God inexplicably threatens to take the promise away. You sacrifice your son Isaac, and uh, you know what happens. He's willing to do that, uh, as Hebrews says, trusting that God even could raise Isaac from the dead. It's God's problem to fulfill this promise, not Abraham's. Abraham is to do as the Lord instructs. Uh, and in fact, God supplies a substitute in the ram who dies in the place of Isaac, so that Isaac and God's people from him might live. But we see in in chapter twenty-two, verse fifteen, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, "By myself, I have sworn," declares the Lord, "because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you." And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And you know uh, how Paul picks up that, those verses in Galatians and explains that uh, that seed or that offspring is Christ. But our point, for the purpose of the writer of Hebrews, is, uh, is verse 16. The Lord says, by myself I have sworn. God says, I swear by myself. Because there's no one higher for him to swear by, to take this oath by. And so that's what he says. And thus Abraham, verse 15, this is back in Hebrews 6.15, thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise Verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God is worthy of our trust because of the promises that he's made, promises that he has secured by his own character, by himself. God, There's no higher authority. God has sworn by himself. So we can count on his word. Now, he goes on uh, to assure us that not only because of the promise of God, but because of the provision of God that has come to us through what he has promised. That provision we find in verses 18 and 19. Guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What is the provision of God for us? Well, one is is consolation. This encouragement, another way to translate it, encouragement, consolation, uh, that God has provided for us by his word and by his oath, by swearing by himself. God can't lie. I mean, God just says it, it's so, but he, he secures that by making this oath, on himself, those two things, his word and his promise, which is impossible for him to lie, we have fled for efforts, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, that's, that's typical language in Hebrews, to hold fast to the hope set before us, to those who are wavering. Well, what is that consolation That encouragement? What's the promise of God? It's the word of God that that stands, that that is reality, that that is truth. That's firm ground you can stand on. And so he gives us that consolation or encouragement. The other thing is stability. Look at verse 19. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. In other words, something that digs deep into the bottom and holds us in place. I remember, uh, growing up not too far from the Gulf Coast, we often go out fishing. Um, different places we might anchor. I remember a couple of times spending the night out on the Gulf. One time tied up to an oil rig, which thankfully didn't blow up that night. Although it was very loud and light and well lit and noisy. Um, but I, I remember being anchored off Horn Island. You don't sleep well. My, you know, dad was up periodically checking the anchor to make sure we weren't drifting onto the beach or something. Um, or just, you know, putting an anchor out to fish. You want to, you want to feel it. And if that line goes really tight, uh, you know, that anchor has dug in. If you feel it vibrating and bumping as the anchor drags across the bottom, then you need to try again. Well, what he's saying here is that anchor has has dug in deep. It's secure. It's firm. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have this word of God, this promise of God, the consolations that gives us. So his provision here is, is both encouragement, but it's also stability. It encourages us to hold fast, but it also holds us fast as we hang on to the Lord, to his promises, and more generally to his word. Because of the promise that he's made, because of the provision he's given us through that promise, but then also uh, because of the priest that he has given to us. Look at chapter uh, verse 19, the end of the verse. He says it's a hope, encouragement, this anchor, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What on earth is that? Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Well, it's a reference there, the end of verse 19, back to Leviticus 16, with the practice of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement once a year, where the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, the lid, the covering of the the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the presence of God. Sacrificing the animals, the one that that would die, uh, the blood is shed, and the other, the scapegoat that's released, signifying the, the carrying away of sins, and this would happen just once a year. But that was what it's referring to. A uh, hope that enters, as that priest does, into the inner place behind the curtain. What's behind the curtain? Presence of God. At least symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant and then later in the temple. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Uh, Jesus himself, of course, is the great high priest who entered uh, into the, the heaven, the holy of holies, not made by hands, and he'll go on to talk about this more, but the actual presence of God, having offered himself, enters on our behalf into the presence of God. But notice even what he says about Jesus, He's the forerunner, forerunner for whom? Normally think forerunner, we think John the Baptist, right? Who came as the the one to prepare the way for Jesus. But he says Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Who is Jesus going ahead for? For us. For his people. That one day we will follow him. Uh, And in a sense we do now, uh, but ultimately we'll follow him into the presence of God. By the cleansing and reconciling power of his sacrifice, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which, of course, makes this transition then to chapter 7 and Melchizedek. Lord willing, we'll look at that the uh, next time. But the point is here that because of this this priest that we have who has entered behind the veil, who has gone before us, that we too will go with him into the presence of God. He goes as our intermediary, but the day will come when we too will be with him in the presence of God, ultimately always because of his mediation on our behalf. But unlike Israel, who never got to enter into the most holy place, we will. We do, even now, when we gather for prayer, when we meet here for worship. Uh, we enter into that holy of holies in the heavenlies, presence of God, and we will, uh, our souls will at death, our bodies will live in the presence of God, in the new heavens and the new earth. Forever, And so, God is worthy of our trust because of these promises he's made, sealed by placing an oath on himself, secured by himself, and the provision that that gives us both a strong encouragement to hold fast and this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul in his truth, his promises, but also because of our priest, because of what Jesus has done, because he's gone in as our forerunner. He paves the way for us to be able to enter into the presence of God. And that's good to hear, coming on the heels, as it does, of a a rebuke against immaturity, not growing as much as we should, on the one hand. Or, on the other hand, the warning against apostasy, his expectation of better things for his readers. But then going back to the fact that immaturity has to do with us and our weakness, certainly apostasy with our sin and rebellion, but drawing us back to recognize that salvation is God's work. It's based on, ultimately, what God has done, uh, what he has promised, uh, what he has provided for us in his word, and certainly uh, in the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have. And so, ultimately, our confidence is not in what we do to hang in there. It's on God, who has taken the initiative, who's promised magnificent things to us that he is going to do that he will not fail to do, For his people. Salvation, as Jonah said, is of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would save us. We thank you for your promises. Promises given to Abraham. Promises, Lord, because we are his descendants that are given to us. And that we are part of that because we are in Christ Jesus by your grace and through faith. Father, we pray that you would keep us. Lord, as a father has a firm grip on the hand of his toddler. Lord, that you would have a firm grip on us. Father, we pray that what you have begun in us, uh, you would bring to completion. We pray, Father, that the uh, the evidences of grace in our lives are real. They are deeply rooted, that they have their root and changed heart, a heart changed by your power, by your spirit. We thank you, Father, for your promises. Thank you for the encouragement and the anchor they are for us. Above all, Lord, thank you for Jesus, our high priest, and we pray in his name, Amen.